Hi, this is Dave Olson. I'm the senior leader of Heartland Church located in Ankeny, Iowa. I hope the following message challenges, encourages, and ultimately changes you. Thanks for joining us. What a wonderful day. It's a beautiful day out, resurrection day. I tell you what, after that worship, I could go home satisfied. I don't know if you felt it. It was like on that second to the last song, it just... The, the atmosphere shift and Jesus came in the room. So, uh, hallelujah. All right, we're going to preach in a suit this morning. Someone asked me, they said, Pastor, are we marrying or burying? I said, well, we're celebrating someone who wouldn't stay buried. Amen? So we're happy Easter, happy Resurrection Day to you. All right, let's go ahead and turn to John chapter 20. I want to look at the resurrection. You would not believe the pressure for a pastor on Resurrection Sunday to preach on this age-old theme in a new and fresh way. And so, man, I always wrestle over, God, how do we, how do we explain the glory of the resurrection in a new way? And uh, so I've been just wrestling with the Lord. I've got about 17 different sermons opened up on my, my laptop. So let's pray. Now you're really going to pray so that we, the, the, so we can land this by noon. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. And Lord, we thank you for what you just did in worship. Jesus, that we get to worship a risen Savior. We don't look back at some eulogy and memorial of a good man that died. But we worship a living Christ who kicked the end out of the grave and annulled death. Lord, we thank you. Hallelujah. Lord, speak to us this morning, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I want you to turn to John 20, John 20 and 21. It's interesting. You know, I never realized till this morning that when we get to John 21 and Jesus appears to Peter on the shoreline, to Peter and the disciples, that was only the third time that he'd appeared to the disciples since his resurrection. Did you realize that? I mean, it says it right there in the text. You should, some of you are thinking, Pastor, I've read that a million times. You didn't know that? I know. I, I just, I, I never realized it. The resurrection to the disciples was much, much different than it is for you and I. We have the luxury of starting our walk with God on this side of the resurrection. So everything is evaluated through that lens. But the disciples started on the other side. And they went through this, this building of the kingdom, Jesus' ministry for three years. Jesus was preaching about the kingdom. And they not only had the promises, but they had their perception of the promises. And how many of you know often those are two separate things? God gives us promises, and then we have our perceptions. And the difference between your perception and the promise is the measure of your disappointment. It's the measure of your disillusionment. And the disciples had these perceptions that Jesus was going to set up an earthly kingdom, and he was going to ascend to the throne and overthrow Rome, and they were getting on the ground floor of this thing. They were looking at cabinet positions. And then all of a sudden, Jesus gets arrested. Peter pulls out a sword, whacks an ear off. He's ready to go to battle because he's seen what Jesus can do. With just a word, when they said, who are you looking, Jesus said, who are you looking for? They said, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. He said, I am, and they hit, they fell over. 
They got back up. Peter thinks it's on, man. He pulls out his sword, whacks off an ear, and I guarantee you he wasn't aiming for the ear. Peter was fearless in that moment. And Jesus pushes him aside, picks up the ear, heals it. Don't you know that freaked the guy out? I doubt if he was one that was swinging the hammer that day after that encounter. They watched Jesus go through the trial, the beating, and then the hanging. And Jesus had warned, especially Peter, the one who yanks out his sword and is ready to go to battle. He warns me, he said, Peter, before this is all over, you will have denied me three times. And Peter, with all confidence, because of what he'd seen, and he meant it. Remember, this is a guy who was ready to take on the Roman army with a little sword. And Jesus rebukes me, he said, Lord, you told me to bring it. He's ready to take him on. And throughout the trial, we see Peter denied Jesus three times. And it says explicitly in the Gospel of Luke, the last time he denies Jesus, he's in the proximity of Jesus, he's close enough, and it says that Jesus caught his eye. Don't you know that was devastating? Because Jesus really did love the Lord. He loved Jesus. He was willing to leave it all. In fact, the day of the biggest haul in his, his business, Peter was self-employed, he was a fisherman, and the biggest haul he ever brought in was the day he walked away from it all and followed Jesus. He was all in. And now in this moment, he's denying he ever knew him. And in that moment, he looks up and Jesus catches his eye. And he's cut to the heart and it says he went out and he wept bitterly. Peter was devastated. Not only did Jesus die, but all their hopes, their dreams, their perceptions, and to them, all the promises died on that cross that day. And so we have three very dark days. We have the luxury of celebrating it on this side. We look at it through the resurrection and view the cross. They experienced the cross without a resurrection. And it was a very dark time. And so we see when Jesus shows up in the resurrection... Their response, I don't know about you, but it isn't what I would have expected it to be. I would have expected backflips. I'm talking party poppers. Woo, you know. I, they, I, they, they would have been freaking out. But there was a more subdued response from the disciples. We need to ask ourselves what was going on. Why was it more subdued than we would have imagined? Let's read in John 20. We're going to read somewhat of a big portion of scripture here this morning. Early in the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary of Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they put him. And to show their love for him, though they thought he was still dead, they were protective of his body. They loved him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. They were both running. And the other disciple outran Peter. It's interesting, the other disciple was John. He was humble enough to not refer to himself as John, but pride enough to mention that he beat Peter in a race. <laughs> he said, the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. 
He bent over and looked in the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in place, separate from the linen. And finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside, and he saw and believed. They still did not understand from the scriptures that Jesus had to, be, had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. They still didn't understand. They were between the promise and the fulfillment. And they were at, lo at a loss of what was really going on. One of the things we need to understand is that death and resurrection is a strategy of heaven. That God uses again and again and again. And if we don't realize that, we will get caught in the same disillusioned state that the disciples did. Let me say it again. Death and resurrection is a strategy that heaven uses continually. God will give us a promise, let the promise die, and then resurrect the promise. And it's what Paul refers to in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 as the hidden wisdom of God. What the Lord will do is he'll draw the enemy in with seeming victory. He'll do things that will make it look to the enemy like he's going to win. And it'll look like to the people of God that there's a, there's a sure defeat. And then in the death of the promise, then God will pull victory out of the jaws of death uh, through a resurrection and turn the thing around. It's called the hidden wisdom of God, the secret wisdom. The problem with the secret wisdom of God is it's also a secret to us, a secret kept from us. When God is working and he's drawing the enemy in, God's like the master chess player. I know many of you have been reading Dutch Sheets as given 15 in the mornings. We, we often refer to it in prayer in the mornings. And last week, Dutch was quoting his brother, Tim Sheets, and something that he had written. And he wrote an article called The King's Gambit. And it's a very special chess move that's used only by masters. Because they, they would have to think 10, even 15 moves out. You've got to be really intelligent. And you've got to be moving things and working and drawing the enemy in, your, your opponent in. Causing them to think that they have the victory. And so only at the last moment you make your move and they realize all is lost. It's too late. And the resurrection is a good example of the king's gambit. The problem is you and I aren't the ones moving the pawns, are we? We're on the board. We're part of this game. And often we are the bait that draws the enemy in. And so when God is working by his secret wisdom, by his hidden wisdom, and he's drawing the enemy in, causing the enemy to feel like he's going to win, it often feels the same way to us. It feels like the, the enemy's going to win. And it demands that we take a posture of hope. And the disciples would learn this later on. Matter of fact, it struck me again this morning... I was, I was reading, it wasn't until, okay, the first time Jesus reveals himself is here in the passage we just started reading. He reveals himself to Mary. 
Mary comes to the tomb and sees that it's empty. She goes and tells Peter and John. Peter takes off running. John passes them. Peter jumps in the, into the tomb, looks at the cloth, and they both go back home. But Mary stands there weeping, and the text says that she looks in, and all of a sudden there's two angels sitting there, and they said, ma'am, why, why are you crying? And she said, they took away the body of my Lord, and I don't know where they put it. She's so undone, just that she lost his physical body. These people are devastated and they don't understand all that the Lord had been telling them that it's necessary for me to die. I'm gonna tell you, when God works in your life, often the Lord will tell you things that you will miss. And because you miss it, you'll, you'll be in the dark in the midst of God's working. And while he's luring the enemy in, he's testing your heart and developing your faith. Do you really trust him? And so she's weeping and she turns around and there's Jesus right there. And we don't know what form Jesus was in because from here on out, again and again, we see Jesus showing up and people know it's him, but they're unsure because he's in a different form. He's in his glorified form. They think he's, they know he's a man and he is a physical man. He even eats with them in his glorified body. How many of you are glad we get to eat in heaven? Hallelujah. <laughs> Glory. I... I'm telling you, there's going to be brisket in heaven. Glory to God. Do you feel that? There's an anointing came in the room. So Jesus was a man, but he was in a different form. And they were struggling to, to, to understand who he was. And she turns around, he's standing right there, and she says, she thought he was the gardener, and she's talking and pouring her heart out. And he says, he says her name. He says, Mary, and she loses it. She says, Rabboni, teacher. She realizes it's the Lord because of the way he says her name. And he says, hey, don't, don't, don't embrace me. Don't hang on to me. I haven't yet presented myself to the Father. Now, this isn't what I'm preaching on this morning, but you gotta catch this. The love of Jesus for Mary Number one, in Jewish culture, a woman wasn't even able to be a, a witness in a trial. But he reveals himself to her first. Come on, ladies. He's, people that say Christianity devalues women don't know history. It's Christianity that elevated women. Before Jesus came on the scene, women could be bought and sold like cattle. Jesus was the one that elevated women to equal status with men. He chose to reveal himself to a woman first. And he was on his way to present himself to the Father. Hebrews 9, this is a little detour, but you got to catch this. Hebrews chapter 9 says that Jesus presented his blood in the, whole, the, the true holy holies, the true place, the throne room itself, like the priest once a year would bring the blood and pour it on the mercy seat. Jesus was the priest, and his blood was the blood. He was the lamb. He was the priest. And he went into the true holy of holies and presented his blood to the Father to purchase redemption. The ultimate moment in all of history, and yet he pauses and stops on his way to seal our redemption because he's just got to let Mary know, Mary, I had to drop by and let you know I'm arisen I'm, I'm alive. He, he paused in 
the salvation act. I don't think you're getting this. I'm not communicating it well. But the love he had for Mary. Ah, I could just lay down and have church on that right there. The love he had for Mary. Jesus was concerned. We're going to see this throughout these passages. Jesus was concerned about his friends. While he's purchasing redemption, while I'm saving the world, while I'm redeeming all things back to the Father, I want to take my friends with me. That's our Jesus. So he says, Mary, don't hug me. I've got to go present myself to the Father. But essentially saying, I just wanted you to know I am alive. I didn't want you to be brokenhearted. Well, I go win your soul. And he presented himself to the Father. Well, Mary runs back and she bears witness to these things. It doesn't say what the disciples thought. I think that's probably mercy on God's part. That he doesn't let us in on what the disciples thought. They probably, there was probably a Hebrew eye roll or something. Even the rest of the disciples had an encounter with him a little later that night. All of, except Thomas. And Jesus walks right through the wall. And it says, they were glad when they saw him. I'm like, what? Glad? It wasn't until this morning as I was looking at that, that I realized I've been too hard on that movie, The, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardroom, the most recent one. I always thought they ruined that story. That is one of the most profound stories You see, the resurrection is too grand, too deep, too amazing to be summed up in mere words. You've got to have allegories and pictures and you wear them out and you you look at it from one story and you see this facet and another one you see this facet, but you can't get your arms around. That's why we need to celebrate this every year so we can just keep revisiting this thing. And in The Lion and the Witch in the Wardrobe, if you know the story, Aslan, he's the, he is, represents Jesus. He is the victorious lion. And I love how C.S. Lewis presents the fallen world. He says it this way. He says it's always winter but never Christmas. There's been a cosmic freeze that has settled on creation. There is no greenery. There is no fresh life. It's always winter but never Christmas. And in the story, there's rumors Aslan is beginning to run the range again because little shoots of grass are beginning to poke through the snow. There's there's a thaw coming about, and there's rumors Aslan is back on the move. And if you've seen the movie, what happens is there's a a boy who sells his soul for some kind of cake. What what was it, Evan? Turkish delight. Turkish, boy, look at you. Turkish delight. (laughs) Turkish delight. I, I don't know. I don't think that doesn't even sound delightful. But anyway, he, sell, he sells his soul. And so Aslan has to go and buy him back. And he cuts a deal. And everybody's glad because the little boy is free, not knowing that the price of letting that little boy go free was his own life. And it's such a vivid picture. Aslan presents himself to the wicked witch of the north who's responsible for the cosmic freeze and all her ghoulish, you know, companions. And they, what, first of all, they shave his mane. And this giant, majestic lion suddenly looks so small and weak and vulnerable. And they do a good job of that in the movie. And the ghouls. I mean, there's some ugly looking creatures there. Pig snouts and all that, you know. (laughs) 
And so then they, they put Aslan on the, golden, that, the stone altar and she jabs him with that dagger and he dies there on the altar. But then C.S. Lewis says this. He said, what the wicked witch didn't understand is there is a deeper magic. There was a deeper magic that says that if an innocent life is taken, that death will work against itself and the stone altar will be broken. And that's what the resurrection did. Death now works against itself. And in the moment, in the, in the book, when Aslan is risen, they hear a great crack of the, the, because the kids had watched this behind the trees, this, this ghoulish thing that was happening, and they're so brokenhearted. And they're, but in the morning, as the sun's coming up, the stone altar cracks, and all of a sudden, Aslan rises, and they're just overjoyed. In the movie, they're like, oh, hey, Aslan, almost like a high five. And I'm like, what? <laughs> but I almost feel like the disciples are the same way. It's like they were glad to see him. Like, what do you mean, glad? And I would propose to you the reason that they weren't doing backflips is because something was going on in their heart that needed corrected. They were not only devastated over the loss of Jesus. They were not only devastated over the loss of their dreams and all of that. They had seen something about themselves that deeply troubled them. When I read this, last night I was thinking about this. It's like, I don't know if you ever t have taken a trip to the mountains. You load up your kids in a, it, when I was a kid, it would have been in a station wagon with fake wood on the sides, you know. And uh, if it was a car, we got to sit in the back window, literally lay in the back window. No seatbelts, kids. It was awesome. And I lived. I'm still here. And, uh, you know, then uh, some of you, it was minivans. Now it would be an SUV. But you load your kids up and you're heading towards the mountain. And your mom and dad say, hey, we're going to the mountain. You've got a promise. You've got the word of your father, but you've also got what you can see on the horizon, this mountain range. And you know this is going to be awesome. But as you go on the journey, you find out several things. Number one, it's going to take a whole lot longer than you thought. Because a mountain that seems so close isn't. The journey is a whole lot longer than you thought it would be. And the disciples were going to learn this in their journey with Jesus, that this is going to take a whole lot longer than you thought. Number two, you're going to find out that the, the, the access isn't going to be as direct as you thought. There's a lot of twists and turns and valleys and stops and, and all of that. You don't get to go straight there. And if you've walked with Jesus any time at all, you know that's true. The route to the promises is not a straight route. You might see them up ahead, but you're going to take some twists and turns. And number three, you find out that the arrival is a process and not an event. You realize that what looked like one mountain range is actually multiple mountain ranges. And you reach one, and then another, and then another, and then another. And the fulfillment of the promise is a process and not an event. And the same is true in our walk with God. The same is true of resurrection. Because remember, death and resurrection, which Paul calls the hidden wisdom of God, is a template, is a strategy that God uses again and again and again. 
This was not a one-time thing. God will use it in your life again and again and again. He will give you a promise, and then he'll let it die. You're on a journey with him. It takes a lot longer than you thought. It's not as a direct route. And the fulfillment is a process and not an event. The last thing you learn is, man, it's a whole lot bigger than you ever realized. And that's what was going on with the disciples. I believe part of the disillusionment in the disciples, on, at the beginning of this thing, they met Jesus and they saw the miracles and they saw how he read, he read their hearts and they loved him and they walked with him and he was training them and he was planting these seeds about he, how he was gonna have to die and they missed all of it. So much so that Peter even argued with Jesus says, Lord, this is not a good idea. You don't need to die. He's trying to talk him out of it. He doesn't believe that this is necessary. And we see Jesus willingly lay down his life and Peter and the disciples are devastated. They're disillusioned. And they're held, they're, they're hiding because of their fear from the, the Romans and the Jewish Sanhedrin. Even after they saw Jesus resurrected, they continued to hide behind the locked doors. It wasn't until they were filled with the Spirit that they became fearless. You realize that? The res seeing him as the resurrected Jesus wasn't enough to make them as bold as a lion. They had to be filled with the Spirit. Now that's one for Pentecost Sunday, but it bears repeating. And so they're, they're devastated and Jesus presents himself to them. And we pick the story up. Look at verse 20. 26, a week later, his disciples were in the house again. This time, Thomas was with them. That absolutely blew my mind. That Jesus waited an entire week to return. I never realized that. Jesus is resurrected, and it says in, later on in this chapter that that was the second time and the third time he revealed himself. So it wasn't like this was just one of the times among many. No, this is, Jesus presents himself to his disciples the evening of the morning that Mary had the encounter with him. And then he waits another week. Thomas had to wait a week to find out if this thing was real. And Thomas said, I won't believe it unless I could put my finger in his hands and my hand in his side. He's still doubting it. This is too big. This is bigger than they thought. It's too much for him to take in. And Jesus waits a whole week. It begs the question, what in the world was he doing during that week? I would think the most important thing that Jesus had to do during this time was to hang out with his, 12, his 11 disciples and pour into them, invest in them, and, and explain what he's going to do. But he waits an entire week. I don't know what he was doing. Scripture does say when he was ascended that he spent 40 days and he taught on the kingdom. I don't know who he was teaching or if he was just hanging out with God or maybe he was going back to heaven. I don't know. But it was a, there was something going on there because there was a difference between Jesus presenting himself to the Father and the ascension that the disciples witnessed. That was his enthronement. And so there's something going on here, but he waits a whole week. I believe, well, let me put it this way. God's absence from your life is always very strategic. Whenever God's hiding from you, it's for a purpose. And it's not because he doesn't like you. 
It's because he's trying to do a work in your heart. And Jesus was trying to get at something in the disciples that he's going to really poke on in the third visitation. He's trying to get at something in these guys. And so he walks in the room. This is the second time. He came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, and this was his way of saying, Thomas, I heard what you said. Listen to what he says. Put your finger right here. See my hands? Reach out your hand and put it on my side. Stop doubting and believe. You ever felt like you got caught? You said something, you know, behind someone's back and they come in and say, I heard what you said. It's a big deal when that's Jesus. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen me and have yet believed. So then verse 30, it says this, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these were written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Now, there's... We see this a number of times in Scripture. There's a few strategic passages throughout the Bible where it seems as though the story ends and then there's an addendum added. We see that in Samson's life. We see it in David's life. And now we see it in the gospel here. It seems as though that's the end of the story. The way that's worded, we wrap it up, the end. But then it adds this final chapter to John's gospel. Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way. And John goes on to share one of the most poetic stories in all of Scripture. And it not only reveals the heart of God, but it reveals a lot of other things that were going on in Peter's heart. Listen to what he says. It happened in this way, verse 20, or verse 2 rather. Simon Peter, Thomas, also called Didymus, Nathaniel from Canaan and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, the two other disciples, were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them, and they said, we will go with you. So they got out and got into their boat, but that night they caught nothing. Now you need to remember what's really going on here. Peter, James, John, Andrew, Several of the other disciples, these men were fishermen. And that was the very thing that Jesus had called them from when he called them. He said, I will make you fishers of men. Follow me. And on the day of their biggest catch, the most profitable day in the history of their business, they turned their back on it all, walked away, and followed him. Then they watched him be crucified, die, buried. But they're now on the other side of the resurrection. It begs the question, what would make the disciples return to the very thing they left to follow him in the first place? You could make a case that these guys were backslidden. Wasn't that they didn't believe, but they had backed off on their commitment. They had left fishing to follow him. And unless you think, well, they just didn't know what was going on. In the previous chapter, Jesus said, as the Father has sent me, so send I you. And then he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. 
It was different than the baptism they would receive later on in Acts chapter 2. But they had, they had this encounter with him, and he was already telling them, guys, listen, I'm sending you out like I was sent. Nevertheless, Peter, the leader, says to the disciples, I'm going fishing. And they all follow him, and they get into the boat. And it poetically says, that night they caught nothing. I'm going to tell you, when Jesus calls you from something, if you return to that something, don't expect to catch anything. Because the thing that once brought you satisfaction and provision will never satisfy again. I heard a preacher say one, one time many, many years ago, and I still remember it. He said it. He cocked his head back and tears flowing down his face. He said, once you've tasted the fruit of Canaan, nothing else will satisfy. And once you've tasted him, once you've encountered him, those things that used to feed you will never feed you again. That night they caught nothing. But you got to love this. Look at verse 4. Early in the morning, the sun was coming up. It's a new day in the life of these disciples. Jesus stood on the shore. But the disciples did not realize it was Jesus. Because again, he was showing up in a form they didn't recognize. It was a new day for them. And God was recalibrating them. In a very real sense, they were being recalled. It's just like when they recall something because it was defective, Peter and the disciples were being recalled. Going to have another encounter with the Lord. He cried out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the other side of the boat and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved, again, it was John, the writer of this book, the one whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it's the Lord. And as soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it's the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him for he had taken it off and jumped into the water. So again, Jesus was showing up in a way they didn't recognize, but they, there was this eerie feeling of, hey, we've had this happen before. This is the second time Jesus said, throw your net on the other side. And this great load of fish. And John said, this has got to be the Lord. I recognize his voice. This is the way he's operated before. And when Peter heard it, the one who said, let's go back to fishing. Let's go pick up our old vocation. Peter said, when John said, it's the Lord. Peter grabs this garment and wraps it upon himself. I believe that represents his calling. The mantle that he wore, it says that he laid it aside. And it's a poetic way of insinuating that Peter, letting go of his calling and going back to his old vocation, one word, one invitation from the Lord caused him to grab it again. And Peter doesn't even wait for the boat to float ashore. He just jumps in the water. You can see it. He's, he's trying to, he's fully clothed. He's got his coat on. He's, but he's just, he's trying to get to the Lord because he needs to get near him. The one that he served and left everything for. The one he denied at the cross. And the one who sought him out and revealed himself to him. Now, Peter's running towards the shore. What's going on in Peter's life? It's the aftermath of the resurrection. He already knows 
that Jesus is risen from the dead. What is going on? I think there's several things going on. I think, number one, I alluded to this earlier, I think sometimes we can attach our perceptions to God's promises. God promises us something and we add to it. We feel like we know what he's going to do. God will fulfill his promises every time. But he doesn't always fulfill our perception of his promises. And we become disillusioned. And Peter's heart was wounded. And I think that was at play here. But I don't think that was the biggest issue. I think there was a deeper issue that Peter was wrestling with. This thing was bigger than Peter ever imagined. When he saw the resurrected Jesus, Peter felt disqualified because Peter had not lived up to his own expectations. Peter adamantly argued with Jesus saying, I will never deny you. You worry about these other guys, Jesus, but I will serve you, I will follow you to the death. And Peter had proven that he really meant it by pulling out his sword and hacking off the ear of a Roman soldier. But when push came to shove, Peter denied he even knew him. And that was devastating to Peter. And now when he realized that this is more than an earthly kingdom. This son of David is more than an earthly king. This is, this, he's the resurrected Lord that conquered death, hell, and the grave. There was something in Peter on the other side of this thing that said, I've just got to go back to fishing. And I would propose to you that that experience is a required course in the spirit. It's a required course in the school of the Spirit. A lot of times we get saved and we, we know we have to be saved by grace because we know we can't do it on our own. But a lot of us, what we do is we think we're going to do the rest on our own strength. And God has to go to work to bring us to the end of ourself. He brings us to the end of ourself before we get saved, but then we pick it back up. That's why Paul says in Galatians, he said, you were saved by grace. Do you think that you now live by the flesh? You think you're going to do the rest of it by the flesh? Did God give you his spirit because you were righteous enough in your behavior? It's from grace to grace, from beginning to end. And so the Lord had to bring Peter to the end of himself. He had to come to the place where he realizes, God, if you use me, it's going to be all you. There was this, this heart connection that Peter had with Jesus, that Jesus, I just want to be near you. Just hearing his voice made him jump out of the boat and start swimming to the shore. He wanted to be near him. But Peter still didn't think he was qualified to serve him. And so Jesus is going to recall him. Listen to what happens here. You got to love this. Some of you need to hear this. When you have failed God, Peter denied him. What did Jesus do? We find no place here where Jesus, you know, laid into him and said, see, I told you so, Peter. Matter of fact, on the front end, he said, Peter, I'm praying for you. When you do this, you're going to deny me and just know that I'm praying for you, that as you're sifted, you'll, you'll not be found wanting. You're going to make it through this thing. And so what does Jesus do? He makes him breakfast. I don't know about you, but that so blesses my heart that in his failure, in going back to the very thing 
Jesus called him from. Jesus searches him out. And what does he do? Does he get on his case and start, you know, rebuking him? No, he makes him breakfast. It's an amazing thing. Verse 8, the other disciples followed in the boat, towing in the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about 100 yards. When they landed, they saw a fire burning coals with fish on it and some bread. Jesus already caught some of his own fish, but he's about to ask them for some of theirs. Jesus said, bring some of the fish you've caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish. And even with so many, the nets were not torn, although the first time they had, now that they've been through the cross, their nets held. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. That's strange. We don't, we don't know what was going on with that, but they knew it was the Lord, yet it didn't look like him. Jesus came, took bread, and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. And now here's the clincher. Listen to this interaction with, G with Peter. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. He's saying, I can still use you, Peter. I'm recalling you. I'm reordaining you. Your failure doesn't have to disqualify you. The only thing that can disqualify you is your own, your own head and heart. I'm, I'm bringing you back into this thing. But if you look into the original Greek, Jesus and Peter use two different words. Jesus asked Peter, Peter, do you agape me? The Greek word agape is the God kind of love, the unconditional love. It's the love that will give its life for another. And Jesus says, Peter, do you agape me? Now, we don't know if he was talking about the fish and saying, hey, are you going back to this? Do you love this more than me? He we don't know if he was talking about the disciples. We don't know if he was pointing, what he was pointing to. But the point was, he was saying, are these things more important than me? Do you agape me? Do you have the God kind of love, the sacrificial kind of love? Will you lay your life down for me? And the one who was so adamant and so confident in his ability to walk this thing out before the cross, after the cross, changes the term. And he said, Lord, you know I phileo you. You know I've got a real affection, Jesus. Lord, I love you like a brother. There's an affection that's knit my heart to you. I don't ever want to lose you. And the Lord said, I can work with that. It says he asked him a, third, a second time, Simon, son of John, do you agape me? He answered, yes, Lord, I phileo you. Again, Jesus said, take care of my sheep. And then it says the third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? But if you look in the text, this time even Jesus uses the other word. Even Jesus questions Peter's affection for him. He said, Peter, do you really phileo me? And it says that Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him this third time, do you phileo me? And he said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I phileo you. The Lord was doing is tearing this thing down to the foundation. And what he was saying is, Peter, I can work with that. 
Because I told you way at the beginning of our relationship, the first day we met, you follow and I'll do the making. I'm going to make you into something. And listen to what he goes on. He says, Peter, Jesus said, feed my sheep. Verily, very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, or you could say immature, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said, follow me. He recalls him. And what he was telling Peter is, Peter, I'm going to get you to the place where you walk in agape love. I'm going to get you to the place where you will be able to lay down your life for me. What I need from you is you simply to follow me. It's a beautiful picture of how the Lord interacts with his disciples and how he interacts with you and I. The Lord uses this picture of death and resurrection again and again. God will give us promises and we, we, build our, we base our life on these promises and we go after these things. And just like Christopher said during transition this morning, many of us have felt disappointed by God because we've put our perceptions on his promises. And in the midst of that, the Lord doesn't come and rebuke us. He searches us out. He makes us breakfast and he draws us back to himself. God can use frail, broken human beings. People who have less than that agape love and that grand commitment that's willing to lay down its life for the Lord. What the Lord needs is for us to have an accurate assessment of ourself and, and more importantly, an accurate assessment of him. Disillusionment after the resurrection is proof that your faith was not in God, but your faith was in your faith. I remember years ago, I was going through something, I don't remember what it was, but I went to Quimby Collier. He was, he's a father to me. And I went to him and I was just very distraught. And Quimby asked me this very poignant diagnostic question. He said, Dave, is your faith in God or is your faith in your faith? And I realized my faith was in my faith and I was wavering because I knew my faith wasn't strong enough to get me through what I was going through. And I thought that God was looking at me and saying, okay, buddy, if you don't have this level of faith, I ain't gonna work with you. And that inadvertently brought me into faith in my faith rather than faith in him. And what I needed to realize is it's not on me. Even in my failure, my faith is in him. Matter of fact, that's why it's got to be in him. Because I not only fail, I can be a failure. I've proven that. But our faith is in him to pull us through. And what God did with Peter, what Jesus did with all the disciples, he would show up and withdraw and let that encounter just kind of settle. Because they were heading toward a promise, a mountain range. That wasn't an event, it was a process. There was range after range, encounter after encounter that was restoring their heart and causing them to realize that their faith has to be in him, that they can't pull this thing off. Before he sent them out, and, and in a few, a few chapters later in the Bible, it said that they shook the then known world. 
These guys who couldn't even stand at the cross. Matter of fact, the only one that stood with Jesus at the cross was the one from the youth group. That was a time for you guys to shout. The only one, it was the teenager, John. All the adults, the men's and women's ministry leaders, they, the pastors, the evangelists, they all abandoned Jesus at the cross. And these would be the very ones that God would use to shake the world. Some of you, your eyes are still on your ability. And that's why your, your faith wavers because you're still looking at your own faith. Your faith is in your faith and not in him. And there comes a point at which you fail and you fail and you fail and you throw up your hands and say, God, I still believe you're going to pull me through. And that, my friend, is the day of liberty. The first probably five years of my walk with God was that. I got resaved every day. And I was in full-time ministry. <laughs> and the Lord is so good to us. I wish, I, I'm, I feel like I can't communicate it to you. When they denied him, he made them breakfast. They still were walking away after they saw him resurrected because they were so disillusioned with them. And that's what Jesus was addressing. Peter, I'm not even sure you phileo me, but I can work with what's in there. You follow me and I'll still make you. That is the message of this passage. Thanks for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to help more people hear this message, you can get the word out by subscribing and sharing it on social media. If you'd like to support the ministries of Heartland Church, you can do so at heartlandchurchonline.com give.